Hi, and thanks for joining us today. We've been going through a four-part series on the Acts of the Holy Spirit to go through the entire book of Acts. And today we've come to the end of part three. We've still got another part. But at the end of part three, we are at the end of tracing Paul's missionary journeys uh, from the Middle East to Europe. Uh, So to pick up off where we left off last week, here's a map of Paul's third missionary journey. Last Sunday, we were at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, and that's indicated by the orange dot, where Paul farewelled the elders of the Ephesian church. Paul then set sail towards Jerusalem. And even though the Holy Spirit warned Paul the persecution that he would face in Jerusalem, Paul was still determined to proclaim Jesus in Jerusalem because he knew how the Jewish council had the potential to undermine all of the hard gospel work that he and the other apostles had been doing. So when Paul arrived at Jerusalem, indicated by the green dot, he's welcomed by the Jewish church leaders. He then spent some time teaching the Bible, particularly about how Christians are to relate to the Jewish Old Testament law. And as Paul taught the Christian freedoms from the Jewish law, many Jews were very angry, and that stirred up a mob to attack Paul. Paul was eventually seized, and he was eventually put on trial before the Sanhedrin, which takes us to today's passage, Acts chapter 23. At the end of the Bible reading, verse 11, which is in the middle of chapter 23, notice what happens. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So notice how Paul is now in Jerusalem, but God says he will end up in Rome. So God reveals to us the end of the story of Acts. Don't worry, he says, Paul, take courage. You're going to go to Rome. However, at that time, God was saying this to Paul. Paul so happens to be in a prison. So how is it that Paul in prison going to end up to testify about Jesus in Rome? The answer to that question is the story of the next six chapter in Acts. But more importantly, the answer to that question opens up a theological understanding of how God accomplishes his ends using human means. Because we've actually read about a prison break before, if you've been uh, remembering back to Acts chapter 12, when Peter, if you remember, was in prison. And God sent an angel to miraculously free Peter from prison. But here in Acts chapter 23, we see that God accomplishes his ends not through miraculous means, but through human means. God in his sovereignty can break Paul out of prison supernaturally, miraculously. He can do it without us. But what we see that God chooses in his sovereignty, he chooses human means. He chooses us to accomplish his ends and purposes. How the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, which is our confessional standard as a Presbyterian church, it's written 400 years ago by English Puritans, This is how they phrased it. God, in his ordinary providence, makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. God, in his ordinary providence, in his usual way of working in the world, makes use of human means. 
And so this passage is theologically significant because it will teach us about God's purposes in the world and how we can meaningfully participate in his grand purposes. This passage will show us how God will use human means to take Paul to Rome for his divine ends. And there are three different means that God puts to use in Acts chapter 23. First of all, God is going to use Paul's discernment. Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin. And notice what it says in verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And here in verse 8, it tells us why. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believed all these things. See, Paul observed, he discerned that there are two camps in the Sanhedrin. He discerns that there are the Sadducees and he discerns that there are Pharisees. He's discerning that between these two groups, there's things that they disagree on. So he shrewdly makes mention of the fact of the good news of Jesus Christ about the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And by making that point, They stop attacking Paul and they start to attack each other. They start to fight each other in the Sanhedrin. So then verse 9, there was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to them? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So the first means that God uses to bring about his divine end in this chapter is Paul's own discernment of the situation. Through his discernment, he's able to act shrewdly with wisdom by making a statement which would make the Sanhedrin at odds with one another. And so in doing so, God delivers him from the Sanhedrin by the very Roman tribunal that had set before him to the Sanhedrin in the first place. So this would suggest to us that the cultivation and development of wisdom is important way that God works in the world. It's not okay to say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven, Jesus died for me, I'm going to eternal glory, the end. Now, we need to say, in light of Jesus' salvation, in light of Jesus saving me, I want to cultivate biblical wisdom. I want to develop discernment. I want to grow in spiritual perception, to see and read situations in light of God's wisdom, because that is exactly what Paul does here. And God uses that as part of his means to accomplish his divine ends. Our wisdom cultivated by God's word and by God's spirit is God's mean to bring about God's purposes in our lives. Secondly, God works in Acts chapter 23 through a young man's courage. Look with me at verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot 
they went to chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now, if you have 40 men plotting and vowing and a a vow of starvation until Paul is killed, then this is not a beef in the shopping center car park. This is organized crime. So let that be the mental picture of Paul's dire situation. Then verse 16, but when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. Verse 19, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him inside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush him. It's fascinating to think about how this young man heard of this secret plot to kill Paul. We're not told of how he came to catch wind of this conspiracy it's making the point that he is, this young man is making a courageous act to speak the truth, expose injustice, to tell Paul, who sends, then sends him to the Roman tribunal, which is having oversight over the city of Jerusalem, and he passes the information to the Roman commander. Imagine how much courage he would need to be. We're told this young man is probably just a teenager. And we see in this God's means of delivering Paul from Jerusalem again. So he uses the courage of a young man as part of his means to bring about his divine ends. So this suggests to us that courageous truth-telling is part of God's work in the world. Whether it's having the courage to tell the truth of the gospel to an unbelieving friend or colleague, to bring about repentance and faith, or whether it's having the courage to tell the truth to confront sin, to bring about repentance and faith in a fellow brother and sister, God uses our courage to speak the truth to accomplish his divine ends. So we've seen God use Paul's discernment. We see God use a young man's courage. And finally, we see God use the full power and might of the Roman army. Look with me in verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horse for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Then the commander writes a letter to explain the situation, seals it, sends it off with the soldiers to to Felix. We read on from verse 31. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they left the cavalry to go with him while they returned to the barracks. While the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. Isn't that incredible? Paul is escorted out of Jerusalem by the full Roman army. What an escort. Paul gets delivered out of grave danger from Jerusalem to Caesarea under the escort of the mighty Roman Empire. 
God uses even that kind of human means to bring about his divine ends. This was just God's way of getting Paul to Rome. It's not miraculous, but it's still extraordinary. God uses ordinary human means to accomplish his extraordinary ends and purposes. God can act miraculously, but God ordinarily works through ordinary means. It's not miraculous, it's not supernatural, but it's still extraordinary. Why are we talking all about this? Why do we need to see this in Acts chapter 23? Why does God want us to see Acts 12, supernatural deliverance of Peter, but he also wants us to see Acts 23, ordinary means of delivering Paul out of prison? Here's why. Because because God uses human means, what we do matters. What we do matters. Because God uses, uses human means, how we live matters. What we do matters. That is the whole point of this chapter. Here's what we tend to do with the sovereignty of God. We had this weird mental exercise that we say, if God is all-powerful, is all-sovereign, then I guess what I do doesn't really matter. No, that is the completely wrong way of thinking about God's sovereignty. It's because God is all-sovereign and all-powerful, it matters what we do. Because your obedience, your faithfulness is the means that God uses to bring about his divine ends and purposes. Let's imagine some scenario. Say God has purpose to save your friend. He has purpose to draw your friend to him this year, perhaps in the next couple of weeks. What means is he going to do to bring about that end? God could send an angel to proclaim the gospel to him. Of course he can. God can do that. He did that to convert the apostle Paul. But God also uses ordinary use of human means. So God is more likely to use you as you pray for your friend, as you engage with your friend relationally, as you answer her questions about the faith, as you share your Christian view on different things, as you tell the gospel, tell the good news to your friends, as you bring them to our church community. As you do all those type of things, those become the means that God accomplishes his divine ends and purposes for your friend's life. Let's imagine another scenario. Let's say God has purpose to use the little kids at Chapel Hill to make a radical impact on the next generation with the gospel. How is God going to bring about his purposes to fruition in these young children? Probably by their parents teaching them to know and love Jesus. Probably by the kids' church teachers helping them to understand the Bible probably by the whole church community to show them how to live out the Christian faith. As we do all these things as a church family, they become the means by which God accomplishes his divine ends and purposes in our children's lives. Friends, what we do matters. You are the means by which God accomplishes his ends in this world. 
And what the gospel does is that it releases you from living for your own ends, but saves you, transforms you to reorientate you to love God's ends. You see, everyone is existing to live for some kind of purpose. But God saves us and transforms us so that we can find joy in being used as God's means to bring about His ends, His greater, more meaningful, more satisfying, more God-glorifying ends and purposes. And what that means is that what you do matters. And so I hope that God would use this passage to change the way you see your life, what you live for and how you live, because what we do and how we live matters. I hope that God would use this passage to change the way that we engage one another in community groups on Sunday worship, because God uses the means of our gatherings to bring about his purposes and ends of gathering a people to reveal his glory and as his people to then display his glory to the world. And so your community group is part of that means of accomplishing that glorifying end. And so that means every community group is charged with divine meaning, charged with divine purpose and significance because every week, God is accomplishing his purposes in our hearts and through us. And so I hope that changes the way we show up with a sense of expectancy. God is doing something here, so let's be part of it. And for those of you who are new to Chapel Hill today, this live stream service is part of God's means to help you understand who God is. It's not an accident that you've joined us today. You're joining us is part of God's means of allowing you to hear God's word, to look in at what Christians do and what defines their lives. And this service hopefully will begin to help you resolve some of the questions that you might be having in your soul that perhaps might be holding you back from receiving Jesus and receiving his grace You're joining us is God's means of awakening faith, hopefully, for you. And as you sense that happening today, I pray that you would find in faith and that you would eventually invite God to accomplish His purposes, His ends in your own life. My desire this morning is that together this morning, we would open up our lives to being used by God as His means to accomplish his divine ends and purposes. That we today, this morning, we would surrender our lives for God's divine purposes. Let's together say, God, use me as your instrument. I want to be your means of extending your kingdom. So whatever you need of me, I'll do it. Let's this morning be like that young man. And take a courageous action and surrender our lives this morning. Would you join me in pray as I lead us with that posture and invite God to change our hearts so we would be his means of accomplishing his divine purposes. Please join me in prayer. Our Father God, we courageously pray this morning, that we would surrender our lives to you, 
that we would gladly and joyfully ask you surrendering our lives so that we would be used by you to accomplish greater things, extraordinary things in the ordinary rhythms and practices of our ordinary lives through our ordinary week. We ask that by your spirit, by your providence, that we will be able to do extraordinary things to be your witnesses, to share of your faith, to build one another up. We see the extraordinary acts of how you have brought Paul from Jerusalem to be on his way to Rome. And so, Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit that you would work extraordinary acts in our own lives to lead others to the faith as we take the journey from Sydney to see you once again in all of eternity. May our lives be a living sacrifice to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.